It's amazing how much it feels like we're doing this for the first time like every week. <laughs> I know, right? It's new every time. All right. Starting the stopwatch now, and you can start the show whenever. Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. And this weekend, we're pondering a really new question. Not whether to play, but whether to let's play. So Rob, this was a story in Kotaku uh, recently about, uh, it was that Dragon Cancer, a game we've talked about on this very podcast before, and the folks who made that game were actually doing content ID claims on YouTube because they were upset that so many people were doing Let's Plays of their game. And if I understand correctly, it was not that they were anti-Let's Play in general, but they were anti-Let's Play for games that were, you know, very, very narrative-based kinds of games where people would kind of watch it once and then not uh, actually buy it. And they felt that their sales were affected by it. So it's, it's a piece about whether or not Let's Play videos are sort of always a good idea, even though they're completely ubiquitous at this point in time. Yeah, there's there's a lot going on here, uh, and this is an issue that seems to come up uh, fairly frequently. Not just content ID, but the sort of the 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 fear that some developers have of of let's plays. And I think you know, to be fair to the people behind that Dragon Cancer, uh, you know what what Patrick Klepek talks about in his article for Kotaku, uh, and what comes up in the blog post uh, from uh, from the team behind it uh, from Ryan Green is that. Basically, they've made no money on this game. Yeah. Uh, that, and it's a little ambiguous whether they mean they haven't made profit on the game or whether or not they, they're in the hole on the game. Cause, yeah. In the blog entry, they, they, they say that, uh, they, decided to take care of debts first. Uh, we decided to pay off all our debt as soon as possible. Um, and so I, I, I do kind of wonder if they're, they're sort of at the break even point and trying to like now see an actual return on that investment yeah. or whether, <laughs> whether they're kind of deep in the hole, uh, on, <laughs> on the cost at cost of, of making the game. But the, bo- the bottom line is, uh, they're, they're either, they're either losing money on this game or, or they're not making, uh, money, money on this game. And they feel like part of that is due to let's plays. Uh, and they have apparently already sort of stepped back what they were doing. They've already sort of removed a lot of the content ID strikes against let's play videos, but, Nevertheless, the, the, not accusation, but the, but the concern stands, right? That they, they feel that because there were so many let's plays of this game out there that, you know, as you pointed out, is, is a sort of linear narrative ex- experience. Uh, they, they feel that that kind of diminishes the, the value or sales potential of, of their game. And, I don't know. I, that, I mean, that's the thing, right? I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I just, I, I just don't know. My instinct is, on some level, they're right, but on the other hand, I, I think it's probably being really uh, reductive to say, well, it's, bec- you know, it, it's down to let's plays. Yeah, it, it's 
there is a lot there. And, and I, you know, I have a lot of sort of mixed feelings on this story as well. And one thing, one thing to be fair is that they really do make a distinction in the blog post that, uh, that the, the folks who made the game actually wrote was, you know, there's a difference between our game and something like, I believe they were compared it to Rust or, or Ark. Arc. It was yeah. Ark, right. Survival Evolved, which is sort of like a really open-ended kind of open world experience that is always changing and sort of like, oh, that's perfect for Let's Plays because people, you know, you're sort of sharing your experience uh with something with you know with this big bizarre world where there's so many possibilities whereas kind of with this you're sharing their experience their game is kind of a very you know specifically um narrative experience and i i have really mixed feelings about that i think it's certainly fair for a creator to feel that way um and it's actually, it's funny, it's something I actually talk about with my own, my girlfriend a lot in terms of when we're sort of deciding what kind of games to Let's Play, because we do a lot of this. We do a lot of streaming, we do Let's Play videos on our own sort of personal YouTube channel, um, and I, I want to play everything. I want to play narrative games, I want to play games that are less narrative focused, I want I just want to play everything and share everything, and my girlfriend is much more of the opinion of that, you know, if something is too story-based and too text-based, it's not going to be... Eh, you know, it won't make as as much for a fun let's play as much as, you know, just sort of like a movie for other people to watch. Basically, it's that's kind of her position. Uh, so I'm 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 of two minds on that. <laughs> Certainly, like I, I I I find it fun. And maybe this is partially because I, I grew up on mystery science theater, uh, that narrative experiences can be shared and can be commented on and can be sort of uh, you can add your own sort of personality and flavor as the streamer or let's play or sort of whatever you want to call it at this point and kind of make it your own. But that is a different thing than literally just playing the game and putting up that that footage and not commenting on it at all and sort of just which which uh, the folks who made the game were saying that was happening a lot that people were just playing it, not commenting, not adding any of their own experience to it and just sort of putting that raw video up basically I, I wonder if to a degree also how many people are doing that just to screw the developer uh, yeah, because there yeah. is th there's a vocal minority of, of of players out there who get really up in arms over the idea of something getting critical regard or recognition that does not meet their definition of a game yes and one of those one of the arguments is you know these you know if they were if they were real games there'd be there'd be tests of skill there'd be fail states things like that uh and these are basically just interactive movies and so i wonder like if if that's a little more common uh with with games like this where you have sort of an activist uh community of haters uh basically <laughs> yeah. trying to screw with you on the other hand though i've seen at the same time i've seen those sort of uh commentary free let's plays of just about any game uh, you can you can find out there, and yeah. to be honest, as 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 a journalist, sometimes I find them a great resource because it's yes. an easy way to look <laughs> up something that you don't remember. Um, yes. So there have been a lot of times where it's like, well, I'm not going to go and reload uh, Call of Duty Modern Warfare, uh, but I will absolutely try to find someone who played it and didn't say a word during that video, uh, <laughs> just so I can sort of revisit the game. Uh, so I mean, I I think that's out there as well, but I do think like. 
yeah, it, it's not all let's plays are are created equal, right? It's sort of the fair use <laughs> yeah. argument. If you're just if you're just posting footage, I think it's probably completely up to the developer's discretion whether or not that should be allowed. Uh, but at the same time, I think there's a world of difference between that and what most good let's players do, uh, yeah. which is sort of create. Uh, an entertainment experience that involves their personality and them adding something to the game uh, that you know th- that otherwise wouldn't be there. Uh, so I, I, I think you know it's 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 I think it's a little disingenuous to pretend that your game is the draw for those let's players because yeah. really those pl- <laughs> those people have their own communities and you know they're kind of the attraction, not not necessarily the game. Yeah. I, th- I think that's completely right. And actually, on the point of sort of just putting up video footage and it being helpful, those are some of the videos that do the best in terms of if you have sort of a consumer-facing video channel like we do at Zam. Um, some of those, and, and we only kind of do that usually with pre-release footage. You know, somebody went to a preview event and they had you know a level of a game or something like that. People love that stuff, <laughs> but it's not usually something uh, anybody does that that is actually a let's player, you know, a, once a game is out. That's, yeah, exactly what you were saying, basically. And, God, I, you know, I, again, it's it's a little bit difficult because I sort of am a let's player in, in certain regards. I do it at work, and I do it sort of for fun with my girlfriend, and... Man, I just love it. You know, I, I really, really love playing games, streaming games with other people and, and also sort of doing let's play. You know, we've done full game let's plays. I've done them yeah. at Polygon with my my friend and former coworker Phil Kohler. And that was one of my honestly, one of the things I did at Polygon that I, I feel the warmest about was our sort of bloodborne full game mm-hmm. let's play. You know, we did a fifty hour let's play of that entire game and I, I like to think we added something to that experience. We were goofy and funny and we made fun of every enemy and and sort of expressed, you know, criticisms when they were appropriate and joy when it was appropriate and, and all sorts of other things. So I, I, I do like to think that this is sort of a new format for, for games criticism and, and appreciating games and sort of being part of covering games. And and I like to think there's a lot of really great potential there for, for interesting criticism and also interesting you know, I guess community building as well. Um, one game that I that I did a let's play of that uh, was incredibly narrative based uh, was I did a let's play of Life is Strange actually on my mm-hmm. own channel on my own Twitch channel and you know there was also again this was sort of a borderline case for me and Patricia because it is such a text heavy game or, or dialogue heavy game and and I remember actually there's there's a portion of that game where um, there's sort of a death with dignity sort of thing going on. I'll, I'll be vague, but, and I went off about, you know, sort of my opinions about that sort of thing. And it sparked a really interesting, I thought really great discussion in our, you know, in our Twitch channel about sort of death with dignity initiatives and sort of where it is in American legislature right now and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I like to think this is a wonderful way of engaging with games on sort of a deeper level sometimes. Now, I know that's maybe a little heady for your average uh, <laughs> YouTube let's play, but I don't know. I, I really do like to think there's there's a lot here, and and I like to think that most kinds of games can actually uh, be let's played. I, I I really wish we had a better term for this, but let's. <laughs> I guess yeah. we'll, we'll just say let's played. Um, even if they are very narrative, sort of linear experiences. Like I I do 
I do understand where the developer is coming from in terms of saying, hey, there's a big difference between different kinds of games and the way that they are uh, played in this manner. But I, I like to think there's a way of covering these th- all of these things in this fashion, personally. Yeah, I mean, the the fact that we're sort of like struggling to pin down what a let's play is, is an indication yeah. like, no, you're talking about an entire form, right? You're not yeah. talking about like a thing. You're, you're talking about a class of things that, that take a variety of different shapes and sizes. Um, at the same time, like I can completely understand the frustration yeah. of there are a lot of people who are making money off sort of posting videos of them playing games and reacting to them. And some of them are better and some of them are worse. But in the end, (laughs) uh, if they're playing your game and they're making money and you're not, uh, there would be, there, there would be an aspect of like, Hey, what, what the hell? Uh, and let let me put it this way. Like, had I watched, had I watched someone play through firewatch, uh, start to finish, uh, and, and done sort of the detailed kind of playthrough that, that I, that I, that I did, right? Where mm-hmm. just sort of looking at all the things and sort of long, leisurely, uh, trip through that game. After finishing that let's play, would I have bought the game? And I'm honestly not sure I would have, right? Yeah. Uh, because, because for me, like, I, I would have told myself I would have. I would have said, you know, at some point when I've forgotten that let's play a little bit, that, that video series, yeah, I'll probably go back and, and I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll totally pick that game up. Uh, cause it seemed really cool. And then I would probably sort of delay that moment, you know, sure. being honest. Sure. And I think, you know, it is, it is going to be a challenge for, for, for games like this to, um, to sort of coexist comfortably uh, with the let's play. Although maybe we are making too much of that. And this is what I mean by Hmm. it being a little bit reductive. Um, Ultimately, it kind of sounds like the real issue with that dragon cancer is that a lot of people don't want to buy the game. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people did want to buy firewatch, but, and so even though those games have like superficial similarities, uh, I, I, I think, you know, like with it, like, like with any, any, any genre or, or any medium, uh, you're going to get different <laughs> results despite those similarities. And I, I, I think that a game about juvenile cancer was always going to be a tough sell. Yeah. And I think you're, I think there's going to be a lot of people who want to check it out via that, uh, non-interactive experience, right? With that, 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 that medium of the let's player between them and the game, uh, rather than say, you know what? Today's the day. I want to, <laughs> I want to play that game about losing my child to cancer. Cause right. that's the boy. That is, that is a tough thing to suit up for. So this, this reminds me actually of a panel I attended at GDC a couple of weeks ago. It was called Surviving the Indie Apocalypse. And there were several developers, kind of all from indie studios who were, uh, kind of talking about how all of them have seen really severely reduced sales and, you know, kind of all across the spectrum of indies. There was, uh, Jeff Vogel, who was from Spiderweb Software. They make the Avernum games and, and they, they were sort of the really kind of niche indie and uh, somebody from Finji, uh, you know, they make Panoramical and Hundreds and all sorts of other kind of games. They also made uh, Cannibalt, the original Cannibalt. And uh, there were there were other folks, uh, you know, who talked about sort of why sales numbers have gone down for indies. And, and really, it's kind of like there's a glut. There's so many indie games now. Uh, you know, a few years ago in 2008, there was sort of like a, a call for indies almost. You know, the AAA market was getting a little... Uh, a little boring and people went to indies for sort of 
everything you couldn't find somewhere else. Um, and a lot of folks were talking actually about, you know, the, the, the answer to the question, the answer to, to the indie apocalypse was to not only make something unique, but also be wary if you're making sort of a linear narrative game. Uh, several folks actually said that. Um, Jordan Thomas of Question, they were the folks who made the magic circle, um, kind of said, you know, they went in making kind of a weird narrative-based game. You know, the magic circle is a game about uh, an unfinished video game, and it's, it's sort of, you know, has a fun, very, very narrative focus. Uh, and he sort of said, there's a quote from him saying, we're a bit like a teddy bear that went wandering in the woods and we got shivved uh, in terms of sort of the, the sales numbers for the game and, and saying like, hey, be, be wary if you're just making uh, a very narrative, you know, a short narrative game, basically, which is also what that dragon cancer is. And sort of the things that are that are doing really, really well on Steam right now. Now, certainly Firewatch did very well, and that is a shorter, you know, narrative game. And you can talk about all kinds of reasons why that one has done well. And they've actually been, uh, you know, very friendly to Let's Players. So that perhaps even helped a little bit. But, um, you know, you can kind of go on and on. But Things like Goat Simulator and Stardew Valley and other things that are sort of weird and you can recreate them in so many weird and different ways do really well with, with Let's Players. And Let's Players are kind of something you can't afford to ignore anymore, which was another major point sort of of that panel. Like, don't ignore Let's Players. That was a huge part of sort of uh, Rebecca Saltzman from Finji. Her talk on this was, you know, several things, you know, sort of being aware of market forces, but also was... Don't ignore Let's Players. That was sort of one of the biggest lessons they learned. And, uh, you know, they're making something now that is more Let's Player friendly. And they're actually sort of courting that market uh, or that, you know, sort of segment of people who cover games now. So part of this, I think, is is just the reality is that Let's Plays are kind of here to stay. And they're really important. And people are really, really watching them. Um, and so being friendly to them, uh, at least in terms of sort of <laughs> not only what you're putting out, but also sort of how you how you put your game out is is kind of a good idea for people who are not major publishers now. But I think the first part of that is what really caught my attention, which was this idea that those types of narrative experiences have in themselves become kind of a, a tough sell, or, not, or if not a tough sell, there are greater risks associated with that kind of game uh, than with other games you might possibly make. And I, I think, you know, to, to me, like, I, I think less players tend to play popular stuff, right? Like, yeah, you know, yeah. the, the existence of a million and one, uh, YouTube videos about things like Daisy, about things like Rust, about things like Ark doesn't hurt those games at all. It, it, it sort of gets people involved. And yes, there's, yes, there's, uh, there, there is, that does have the effect of people can watch those videos. And say, well, I wonder what I could get up to in that game. Yeah. Whereas yeah. you don't have that reaction to a narrative game. But I, I, I think the, the real issue is those games sort of lend themselves to the format of, of a let's play video where people sort of explore the possibility space, right? Yeah, and, yeah. and that sort of creates more that, that probably generates even more interest, uh, among that community. What concerns me a little bit in, in your sort of description of that panel is that, if developers start seeing these like personal narrative like experiential games as being a bit like an inherent business risk uh then we're a little bit 
in trouble, I think. Yeah, because I, agree. I, I am certainly feeling like we are full up on 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 survival games and survival Minecraft games and <laughs> Minecraft games. Like there 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 are all those things out there. If those are if if those are considered the smart thing to develop, right? If if you if you're trying to be the if you're trying to be the next if you're trying to be the next Rust, uh, if you if you're trying to be the new uh, the next Daisy, um, that's you know then then that's kind of why we're washing this stuff on like on early access and stuff. Yeah, but yeah. that's that that it, that means that that does feel like that's coming at the expense of games that are maybe smaller. Uh, a little narrower in scope. They aren't, they aren't play sets. They're, they're experiences. Yeah. Uh, and if people start viewing those as a risk, uh, then we will probably see fewer of them and at a lower quality. And I think that's, I think that's something of a loss. Yeah, I agree completely, especially as somebody who really, really loves personal games and, and games that tell a story and games that are very narratively focused. That That's kind of my bag. That's what I love to play. Like, I think these survival games are really fun and interesting. I, I almost have the opposite reaction. I'd rather watch somebody do goofy things in Rust on a video and then go and actually play something like Firewatch or That Dragon Cancer or The Magic Circle. Um, that's That's kind of what I... Like, <laughs> so, yeah. so it, it bothers me to think that, you know, people who are making these really cool experiences uh, might feel, you know, discouraged uh, from doing so in the future. So, God, I hope. Uh, <laughs> and, and honestly, another thought that I'm having and another thought I had during that Indiepocalypse uh, talk was that we're all part of this. Like, we in the press are doing the same thing. We're going after traffic the same way that, you know game developers are going after sales and not necessarily because you just want to be, you know, rich and have a war chest. You, you want to survive and keep doing yes. your job. And we are all kind of complicit in this. You know, we, I, I have to post chunks of game of, of pre-release gameplay, even if it's not the most interesting thing, you know, personally for me always to do, Oh, Oh, here's an hour of, of gameplay that I didn't even comment on. Yeah. I didn't, you know, like we, we do that because it's, it, it, it is partially sort of a service and it is, you know, sort of something people want to watch, but it's kind of like, Hey man, I, I, <laughs> I really want to put my stamp on this. Like, that's what I do. That's my, you know, that's what my job is supposed to be is to, you know, kind of review things and crit and give critical analysis and give my thoughts on things. So there's so much of this that, that it feels like we're all in the same game together. <laughs> we're all going after eyeballs basically at this point, you know? Yeah, and I, I, but at the same time, I so I hear the complaints sometimes from uh, fr from indie developers uh, that you know big sites or, or even most game sites don't pay enough attention to them, uh, and and hmm. there's not enough <laughs> uh, enough time uh, looking looking at indie games that that most sites, uh, you know, for instance, the fact that like sites will churn out uh, you know a million articles on Destiny. Right. Uh, and like <laughs> almost have like full time destiny correspondence, uh, and will ignore most of what's happening, uh, in the indie marketplace. And I, I mean, I don't That's feel, people I want to read. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't actually feel that bad about that. Uh, because I like having been someone who like at times had sort of a, a, a sort of an open, uh, sort of a freewheeling portfolio to go and track down, uh, you know, kind of whatever, um, yeah. watching those indie stories wither on the vine, uh, watching readers just not care. Uh, that's, that's pretty discouraging. Uh, it's, yeah. it, you know, and, and at a certain point, like, 
your job is to go and serve that audience. And yeah. unfortunately, a lot of that audience doesn't really want to hear, like, they don't want to hear about like new things that maybe are cool. They want to hear about the big thing they're already invested in, uh, yeah. and, and learn more about it. So I, I don't, I don't really feel that, that bad about it. And the, the other thing I think is that indie as a term sort of has this assumed inherent virtue. Right, and yeah. come on, man, like, we're, Not you, anymore. You, you and I are you and I are both in the same business. Most of those games are boring too. Yep. Like <laughs> most of anything is boring. I mean, it's just it's just um God, what is the name of it? Surgeon's Law. Yep. Yeah. It's it's just ninety percent of everything is crap. You know, it's just and and that's never going to not be true. Yeah, but <laughs> you, you know? know what? Like that can be a big, boring, stupid game, but it's a big, st- big, boring, stupid game that that will matter to to an audience, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, a, a small derivative, sort of uninspired game, it, it won't. And I, I, so I mean, I, I, I think yes, we we are sort of complicit in that, but at the same time, like. Man, this this is this is an era where I think everyone working in media is is hyper aware of yeah. what audiences actually care about. Yes, uh, and we have to be, or we're dead. You know, it's it's we don't have the luxury of yeah. you know sort of all being in a newspaper where you know the the sort of more popular sections took care of the fact that oh yep. yeah you know the little things could still be in there because there's there was space you know there's a lot of space <laughs> basically um we're not in that era anymore now we we have to be kind of serving people with everything we put up and i actually you know sort of as a reviews editor i've made uh, even i've only been doing this for 3 months you know as a reviews editor um but i've even made changes to sort of what how i decide what to cover at this point and i kind of told all my reviewers at one point like we are going to cover small weird indie games because i want to do that and because some of those things are going to be amazing but you need to come at me with your pitches with your review pitches with why this is going to be interesting you cannot just say hey some pr firm just emailed me a code for i don't know like that's not going to work anymore we're going to cover weird things but you need to really make the case for it, you know? And I've kind of been going with that philosophy. Like we're covering the big things, we're covering the sort of mid-sized things and we're covering weird little tiny things, but you'd better have something really, really interesting in your hands before you kind of come with me with one of those, uh, with one of those pitches. Yeah. Attempting to find a balance for that sort of stuff, which is not easy, but hopefully we're going to get there. (laughs) Yeah. I I do think like a lot of those like more open world survival sort of open-ended type games uh, have sort of boomed because they lend themselves so readily to the let's play format. Yeah. Uh, And I mean, I I may have brought it up on the show or, or, or not, but, but uh, in his review of layers of fear, uh, sort of Tom Chick brought oh, up yeah, his theory yeah. that it was a game specifically designed around, uh, around Let's Plays. Uh, although that's not, an, that's not an open ended game. So that sort of disproves my thesis. Uh, but, <laughs> but it's a horror game. And those yeah. are also kind of the other end and maybe even a tiny bit less so now. But when, when the Five Nights at Freddy craze was all, you know, all you ever heard about. Those games were, you know, there were, I played so many Five Nights at Freddy's clones, it's not even funny. I'm so glad I missed that entire craze. (laughs) It was kind of horror games or really open survival games, and and that was sort of the horror end of that. Like, I'm pretty sure that game was really based on sort of how popular those PewDiePie Let's Plays were of kind of goofy horror games. Yeah, so that that is 
I think that does actually prove kind of your thesis, just sort of the other the other half of it. Certainly, I mean, you know, I was, I, you know, before we before we recorded this, I was sitting standing there in the kitchen and just thinking about like, man, markets suck because you know things because <laughs> you know things are happening because of like small decisions, right? The the tyranny yeah. of small decisions. And I'm no better in this. In general, I will make the same sort of selfish decisions. But you know, as as people are realizing what people like as as creators realize what people will and won't pay for realize how they'll pay for things realize what gets coverage what lends itself to sort of a virtuous cycle of of coverage and sales and exposure um you know that that does sort of create trends that you're you're sort of powerless to really challenge uh and and does sort of exert a narrowing influence on on game design and I think that Dragon Cancer kind of ended up uh, for a variety of reasons on the losing end of that of that process, and maybe that'll yeah. turn around. I, I hope it does for them. Uh, but we are increasingly in an era where it is just difficult to sell people things. It is difficult yeah. to even <laughs> things they will enjoy, right? Even things that they might want. It is just di- it is just difficult now uh, to make that pitch to people. Yeah. It really is. It, it's and it's a depressing reality, and it is something that sort of came up several times with even in private conversations at GDC with you know developers and and folks who are kind of striking it out on their own trying to make it work. It's just kind of like, man, this sure is a business, you know, and, and that yeah. gets that gets lost sometimes, honestly. And and I I lose that sometimes as well, you know, as as somebody who who sits here, you know, happy having having a full-time job and a part-time job and and is doing okay and only kind of makes little games as a hobby you know i'm i'm sitting here like oh look at all the amazing possibilities and all the wonderful ideas that that get made and and it is a really sobering reality to think like hey most most of these are not going to do well and that's that's kind of how it is and god i just i just really hope for an upturn in the market and an upturn and and you know sort of deserving and interesting work being made and being supported. So that's that, I guess. <laughs> I think uh, it's probably time to move on to our weekend correspondence right now. And our first letter is from Willie Schinmeier. Willie writes, your discussion about rushed reviews made me think. How does podcasting compare to written reviews? It feels to me like you're more easily able to talk about older games and deliver update th- uh, updated thoughts the next week. That might explain why I enjoy listening to podcasts so much. Well, that and the personalities. Looking forward to your next pod, Willie. Uh, yes. So it's also it also makes sense to uh, discuss a little bit uh, of um, sort of how we differentiate things in formats as well. Some podcasts, like this one, um, we we do structure things a, a little bit differently, and we try to have a you know sort of a topic going in, and that helps us kind of uh, form our thoughts a, at least a little bit. Uh, before we go in, as opposed to thumbs, where it was kind of like every week, you know, at least the, the during the time I was on thumbs, it was like, we're going in, we're going to just, you know, talk about this, this and this, and then we kind of did it, you know. Um, but yeah, I, 
I really, I don't know about you, Rob, uh, since you do a lot of podcasting, but I love podcasting. I, I really, really enjoy kind of having the space for my thoughts and being able to mull things over a little bit and, you know, have conversations with you about sort of the stuff we've all been playing and thinking about and, and reading about and so on and so forth. Uh, so yeah, there, there is a little bit more time, I think. And there is the space to kind of talk about games from, from the past. You know, we couldn't, I don't think I could really, <laughs> Um, make an excuse for like, hey, let's talk about Burnout Paradise for a little while, you know, on my website, like writing a, a piece about that, unless it's newsworthy. But here, we can talk about whatever we want, you know, and that's really, really nice. And I like the, the having the ability to kind of contextualize that to, you know, hopefully make things somewhat newsworthy or make things interesting. But we're not beholden to the same really sort of rigid... Um, you know, strictures that we are, uh, at least that I am, you know, uh, sort of on our own websites. Really, like, podcasts are kind of why I ended up getting into this business. Like, like <laughs> a lot of people, uh, I sort of got caught up in the magic of uh, uh, Games for Windows radio. Oh, yes, uh, yes. So, the, the, the Brodeo. And that was that was kind of what got me through a crappy job and kind mm-hmm. of also what inadvertently sort of in a roundabout way led to me getting fired from a crappy job and uh, striking out as as a freelance writer. So, I mean, I understand the appeal of the format just as a listener, because that's that's kind of how I came to this uh, as, as someone who participates in it. I, I think, boy, it, it feels so nice to be able to work through your thoughts on something live with another person (laughs) and not have to adopt the stance of like editorial authority that is required in, in our day jobs. Right. Like, (laughs) yeah, we can just sort of, we can just sort of bullshit with each other and, and sort of explore a topic, but we don't actually have to, <laughs> we don't actually have to commit to anything, right? right? Like it's not like it's not like you're posting a story and saying this is a this is a this is a fact. This is this is how we're reporting on facts, or uh, this is an opinion that's going to sort of stand with the score next to it for forever yeah. and all time. Uh, this is what I, you know, reviewer think of this game. Uh, a pod- podcasting allows you to be, I think, maybe a little more honest about about where you stand with, with topics and games. And, uh, so it's, it's a real, it, it's a real delight. And I think a lot of times, uh, it's, it's on podcasts that I really start to get a focus on, on what people actually think about games, right? What are the, what are the experiences they single out rather than reviews, which sometimes, uh, have to, have to cover a lot of different bases that maybe obscures what, what actually landed for a person. Agreed. <laughs> uh, so our next email, and I should preface this. Oh, yeah. Uh, this this yes. email requires a bit of prefacing. One, I'm not entirely sure we're not being elaborately trolled because <laughs> whoever wrote yeah. this uh, had to know that we would not really be uh, on board with this. Right. Uh, we, we would not share these positions. Uh, but... I wanted to I wanted to read this out because one it's a it's it's a pretty thorough argument uh, for objective reviews and it's done politely and it's done thoughtfully and because this comes up again and again online uh, <laughs> at our places of work <laughs> yes. I think it's worth discussing uh, some of the the thoughts laid out here. Okay. So here we go from Mr. G. Hi, Robin Danielle. The recent reviews of The Division have finally solidified something I've been feeling for some time, and that is reviewers have forgotten what their job actually is. Obviously, <laughs> this is my opinion. 
You see, to me, a game review is about how well does the game stand up on its own? How good is it compared to its peers, and are there any issues? For this, we need scores on graphic, sound, gameplay, and absolutely no opinion from the reviewers. Imagine car reviews when an accomplished family car is trashed because the reviewer didn't like it as much as his Porsche. Now, after this, I'm happy for a reviewer to say what they think and maybe give it a fun rating, or better still, just a reviewer's summary. Podcasts, editorials, etc. is exactly where we want opinion. This is where I love to hear what you and other journalists think, but I think review and reviews and scoring are not the place for it. Uh, so here's an example. A huge portion of the major reviews of the division criticize it for not being real enough, the setting being fine if it was orcs, and there being no end game content. If you look at the game on a technical and not on an emotional level, it's a 20 to 30 hour single player co-op game that is a near perfect RPG. Uh, it's a third person modern military Diablo. Now you could say, if you don't love the modern setting, the game doesn't have much variety compared to Destiny, but this is not the game's fault. This is personal preference and should never be part of a score. Uh, as for criticizing the lack of an end game, I say after you get 30 hours of it, uh, and there's still something to do, that's bonus content. Uh, so when scoring, this is what I think should be counted. And, and things like Modern Warfare 2 killing, uh, killing server-based multiplayer for years on the PC. But strangely, that never came up in reviews. So what do you think? When judging a game professionally, should it be about how good it is, regardless of if the reviewer liked it? Anyway, sorry for the rant, but I know, but no, I send this to you because I think you are two of the most considered podcasters out there, Mr. G. All right. <laughs> lots, lots to unpack there. Yeah. And, and Mr. G, if this is an elaborate troll, uh, I salute you, uh, cause it still gives us, <laughs> it still gives us a chance to, to talk about a position, uh, that, that we encounter a lot and, and have thought a lot about. I'm, I am of the opinion, uh, that reviews are opinion pieces. They should be completely the reviewer's opinion because the only person you can sort of speak honestly about in terms of your reaction to a game is yourself. There is no such thing as an objective review. Uh, and that sort of brilliant uh, objective game reviews website, well, I believe it's it's defunct now, but it's somewhere it archived good. on the internet. Yes. Um, which was wonderful in sort of showing that exactly. An objective review would be something like, when I press A the character jumps and literally that just, just the facts. Um, I, I understand, I, at least I think, and I, and I try to understand sort of where this position comes from. And it seems to come from a very, very pure product or, you know, consumer product review sort of standpoint of how well does the software work basically. Um, which, which I, I get it on some level. I do not think it is, uh, the way that, that people should, uh, sort of approach reviews, basically. And I don't think that it uh, sort of conveys the richness and the the sort of conflicting opinions people can have about a game. You can think something is a really wonderful piece of work, but you find it morally repugnant, then you're not going to want to play it. That's actually more of the reviews that I've read on The Division are are saying things like the gameplay is, is fine and, and somewhat interesting. The setting is interesting, but the sort of moral view, the sort of political tone that it takes is really disgusting to a lot of people. And that is why uh, they have a hard time with it. Not, not because of the end game content or, you know, sort of the the gameplay itself um and i think that's more than valid that's what i care about as a player i care about going into worlds that i will find interesting and and i will get some kind of value out of not something that's going to just make me want to throw up and be like really 
okay, let's let's kill some looters. Yeah, great. You're a looter too. You know, the kind of stuff that's going on in the division is is kind of gross to me. Now, that doesn't mean that you should agree with me or that you should agree with these reviewers. I mean, I'm of the opinion that you should find a reviewer who generally maybe sort of sees the world the way you see it. Uh, and if, if you want their opinion in terms of, of how much you like something, then then go for it, you know, kind of go with them, if that makes sense. And it is certainly healthy to read people you don't agree with. I, I don't always agree with Tom Chick's reviews, but I think he's a great guy and he always makes incredibly well-reasoned arguments. And I never miss a Tom Chick review, certainly. Um, so I, I would say to you, Mr. G, open open your mind a little bit to to criticism. Think of think of game reviews less as product reviews and more as uh, cultural criticism. And I know that probably sounds fancy pants and haughty toddy and all that sort of stuff. And I don't actually think it needs to be. I think criticism is a more honest way of approaching something and evaluating something. I think going with your gut is a more honest way of, of telling people whether or not something is worth your time. Personally, that's how I feel about it. And that's how I kind of run my department. Um, and there's certainly other sites that do other things with this. So there's there's room out there for, for this worldview, certainly. For, for one thing, I, I think you, you, there's there's an underestimation of, of how much criticism good, the, the critics actually read. Uh, so the, the, car <laughs> yeah. review, the car reviews example, uh, car review example is interesting uh, because I actually read car reviews. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I subscribed to uh, Car and Driver for years, and I found the reviews there really interesting because it is a different, it is a very different sort of thing to review than, than a video game, but the overlaps were interesting. And seeing how car critics sort of approach the, approach the topic uh, versus game critics was was really instructive to me, and there's there's an example where honestly, um, <laughs> you know, there, there's the, the 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 person reviewing a car has a pretty serious obligation because people are making you know. 20, 30, 40, 60,000 dollar decisions yeah. uh, that are somewhat influenced uh, by these by these reviews. But at the same time, the review has to be interesting, right? Like yeah. <laughs> if you just wanted if you just wanted uh, to know whether a car is good or not, Consumer reports reviews will probably tell you everything you really want to know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they, they, they break things down that way. Uh, so, so what a, what a reviewer in, in the case of a car does is sort of give you the experience of what it's like to, to inhabit and, and live with a car. And of course, of course, reviewers there aren't comparing family minivans to, to Porsches. Right. Uh, but that's the same situation in games. I'm not comparing, you know, nobody, nobody's going to compare uh, the division to say, you know, gone home. It's, yeah. it's a, it's a worthless comparison. Uh, and, and a, you know, a responsible critic probably wouldn't make it. So, I mean, reviewers are already generally trying to approach things with, with that amount of, of context. Uh, so the, the question then becomes what, what context matters around the division? And, the division has to be compared both to uh, that type of, of RPG, uh, action RPG, uh, but then it also has to be compared to uh, you know other uh, you know other other modern military settings, uh, which necessarily like not always necessarily it's a it's it's certainly your choice as a critic whether or not to engage with this or not. At a certain point, you're kind of ignoring the elephant in the room. Right. If, if yeah. you, if, if, if you exist in a cultural moment, uh, and right now one of the, you know, signal 
aspects of, of our cultural moment is the fact that, uh, there's a great deal of unrest in American cities. Uh, there is a lot of violence by authorities against yeah. citizens. Uh, at a certain Particularly point, citizens of color, which uh, makes a lot of sense in uh, the division, especially. Yeah. So at a certain point, like you're, you're, you're definitely like, don't think the reviewer isn't making a choice when they don't bring that stuff up. Right. They're absolutely making a choice to sidestep that. Uh, cause then you're sort of choosing to, to sort of put the blinders on and not discuss it, which is fine. Maybe that's not the way you want to engage with that game. Uh, but I, I think it's, I think it's perfectly fair to, to do so. The, the other thing though is, you know, if you look at these examples, it's just objectivity is an ever retreating goal. <laughs> because there's almost there's like nothing you can say that is that is object that is really that like objectively uh true i mean because the thing is like if i say i don't think the division's a very interesting shooter i think and unfortunately on you know it is it is sort of a hybrid between a shooter and and a game like diablo but if i fundamentally don't enjoy that shooting if i fundamentally get bored of walking in the room and hunkering down behind cover and just you know spraying machine gun fire for <laughs> 10 minutes um then i'm not going to enjoy that game but that is absolutely subjective judgment you know there's no there's no absolute like there's no absolute score that that anyone could could possibly assign that um and in a lot of cases, things like, uh, you know, even trying to break things down in terms of like graphics, sound, gameplay, it's, it's just impossible. A lot of games look amazing. They're technically very proficient. Uh, but those games can still be ugly or boring, yeah. uh, depending yeah. on how you feel about it. Um, what was the, what was the, what was the game? Was it Dragon's Crown that had the really controversial artwork? Yes. And um, I reviewed it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I look. I saw we I saw months later Greg Cassavan uh, saying that I, I respect Greg Cassavan's uh, views a lot and he said he thought the the artist for that game was was brilliant and and something of a visionary and a lot of people sort of missed the point of of that sort of overdone artwork I thought it was hideous um, I like I saw screenshots of that game and I was like like you are out of your mind this is this is the most ghost trash. Uh, yeah. but, but how, but how do you review that? Cause they, cause there, there are no graphics there that you can really engage with. There's just what you think of the art. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and God, with that game, it, it was especially fraught because it was sort of the women characters were, were dealt with very differently than sort of the male characters were. Um, you know, was- I, I, I don't know, man. Cause having like looked more at like art from that game everything was so overdone. Like everything was this weird gigantism of the body to the point of <laughs> grotesquery. And yeah. I, I, I don't know, like, had, like when I looked more at the art, I did start to feel like maybe the gendered issue was a little bit overdone personally, because everything just seemed cranked up to 12. And yeah. I mean, ev- in terms of the, in terms of the actual playable character designs, you're absolutely right. Everything was super cranked up to 12. My, this was something that actually kind of got lost in my review. I actually didn't really take issue with the with the playable characters. I thought the Amazon was awesome. She has a giant butt and giant boobies, and that's fine. Like I don't care. That's I certainly don't have a problem with butts and boobies. Let me just yeah. go on the record uh, for that. My issue with the game was sort of the way the uh, NPC women were presented. They were sort of portrayed as right. like incredibly, incredibly sexualized. Like there was one woman who was like dying and had a tiger a tiger's head in her hands and her legs were spread wide open. It was like really gross. Um, and you could sort of touch the women and they would 
react in sort of an orgasmic way. That was my issue with it. That okay, women yeah, that were, gets a little weird. That the NPCs were presented as like sexual objects and they were almost all dying or dead or, you know, something something really nasty. I I I'm I'm one of those weird feminists who likes sexy women to be all over the place. I just prefer them to be have agency, and you know, I I didn't yeah. mind the balloon boobs so much uh, in the player character. They were a little hilarious, certainly. Yeah. They were a little distracting, maybe, um, but but at least they were kicking ass and taking names and you know right. that sort of thing. See, I totally misremember uh, that because all I remember was the controversy over the the art in particular. Right, so that's yeah, right. cuz now now I remember of you and 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 I remember that was your that was your objection. Uh, yeah, but you yeah. know, I, I think there's there's a broader issue here which is in general journalists media outlets have vastly overpromised what objectivity encompasses. Yes, certainly. I think some of that comes from, is sort of inherited from the political discourse and how it's changed over the last like 20, 30 years. This idea yeah, that yeah. now you can't ever pick a side. You can't ever render a final judgment on something because you mm. always have to be open minded. You always have to let the Give other side. Equal time. Say, yes, yeah. exactly. So that lends itself in the political sphere to both sides do it type coverage. Uh, but I think it has sort of infected everything where, where now at a certain point it is believed that if an opinion is ever rendered in an official capacity as a journalist, uh, it is somehow invalid. And that's, that's not, that's not really what objectivity is about. Really at, at, at heart, objectivity was always about not having a vested interest in something. It was, it was about approaching a topic w with an open mind, unsentimentally. But eventually you have to sort of look at, look at the facts before you look at the thing, look at the examine, whatever it is you set out to examine. And eventually try to render judgments on that. And sometimes that means rendering judgments about what is and is not factual as a reporter. And sometimes that means rendering judgments about whether or not you think the division actually is a third person modern military Diablo <laughs> and whether you think that's a good and worthy goal that the game achieves. Uh, so I, I think a lot of it is, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to think. If you just look at what the game, in my opinion, you know, my opinions are objective because I'm telling you what the game actually is. Right. These critics are, are, are judging it by these other standards. But in, in neither case is anyone really being uh, objective. Like subjectivity is always, you're always ready to fall through the ice into subjectivity. Some port part of this is something you, you just touched on there in terms of politics being because <laughs> political discourse has become so incredibly toxic in the last few decades and incredibly uh, opposed, um, that that plays into this as well, where people distrust anybody with any political opinion about something that is in the entertainment world, not even just games, but entertainment. Um, and people will just mistrust that and say, you have an agenda and you have an agenda and you have an agenda when it's kind of like, well, every human being has has their feelings on these things. Yeah. I, I, you know, certainly there are some people in the world who are apolitical, um, but most people have some kinds of feelings about politics and what's right and what's wrong. Some kinds of feelings in this world about uh, these things. And it, it, it makes me sad and it kind of grosses me out a little uh, when people are so, they can't sort of take something like that with a grain of salt and also say, okay, this is what this person thinks and that's valid. Their feelings yeah. are valid. Even if I don't agree with them, okay, I, I, I get where you're coming from. And I guess I being raised on Sesame street, I wish we could all share and care, but uh, yeah. maybe, maybe we'll live in that world one day, Rob. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> you know, I think as far as like forgetting what our jobs are, I think as we discussed earlier on the show, it's about getting an audience. It's a, it's, it's about serving that audience. And 
in a lot of cases, our, our particular audiences want more than a score and they want yes. more than sort of a bloodless analysis of, of the facts of a game. And that, you know, that is increasingly who is served. And there are other places, uh, that you can, you can find, uh, outlets serving a different type of audience. Uh, you can go to Metacritic and, and just try to get the, you know, you try to get the, the numbers. Yeah. Try to get the numbers. But, but ultimately the job is to serve the audience that your outlet has, uh, as well as, you know, in my case, maybe try and, and, and have some fun doing it. Um, yes. And, you know, to, to be clear, there are, there are a lot of reviews like Danielle and I, you and I probably both read a fair share that make us yes. roll our eyes. Like, okay, we get it. Like, you really want, you really wish you were, like, you were being paid, like, 50 cents a word by the Atlantic magazine. Yep. And you're really swinging for those fences. I totally get it. Oh, uh, and sometimes people connect with those swings. Uh, sometimes yes. people absolutely yes. nail it. Other times, uh, it's, 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 it's embarrassing. But, yes. you know, that's, but that's just life, right? That's just writing. Sometimes people try to do awesome things and suck. Sometimes they, sometimes they nail it. Uh, so th- don't think that there's this like fancy pants versus like blue collar divide, uh, in games writing. It's, it's execution is everything. Yes. I could not have said that better myself. I couldn't tell you how many pitches I've gotten this week that I, did roll my eyes at that were like very they're coming from a good place and i and i could tell and i appreciate yeah. that but man oh man sometimes it's like all right you gotta you gotta kind of <laughs> be a professional about this stuff you know <laughs> so yeah awesome so our last email comes from ian mcdonald ian says dear idle weekend gang loving the new podcast looking forward to getting ready for my weekend with the two of you Lately, I've been thinking about the Call of Duty franchise as we approach the inevitable unveiling of the next game in the series. The real reason I've been thinking so much about Call of Duty is because I've heard so many times that the series will not return to the Ghosts storyline because Ghosts was so poorly re- uh, received so poorly. I'm not asking for an explanation as to why a game I enjoy so much was disliked by so many, but rather I'm wondering what games have been dear to you that have fallen short in the eyes of your friends or in the eyes of critics. Thanks for the great work you do on the podcast. Always looking forward to the next episode. Sincerely, Ian. Ian, when you when you wrote this email and you said ghosts twice in the same email, I immediately thought of of maybe one of my my most relevant examples, which was uh, a game called Murdered Soul Suspect that nobody liked besides me. Actually, Susan Arendt at, uh, um, she, I think she was actually even at The Escapist at the time, but uh, of Games Radar Now, uh, also kind of liked it. Uh, but this was sort of a murder mystery game where you played as a ghost and you kind of had to use your ghostly powers to to be a detective. You wicked were literally New a ghost detective. Wicked New England, by the way. Wicked, wicked, wicked New England kind of vibe going on. Um, it was completely, it was set in Salem, Massachusetts, and it really looked and felt it and was sounded uncanny. like Salem. It was incredible, incredible. The sort of mix of eerie, you know, witch trial kind of stuff and sort of eerie supernatural uh, vibe with just modern New England town kind of thing going on. They nailed it perfectly. They had a lot of really wonderful little ghost stories that were kind of hidden in this world. You, as the as the ghost detective, could, you know, you talk to other ghosts and you could kind of, um, you know, sort of go and investigate these these little uh, bits and pieces of other mysteries other than the central mystery, which had to do with your wife and uh, this other murderer and all this other kind of stuff going on. Um, it, it was a really awesome little game. Now, it had some problems, certainly. Uh, it had this sort of stealth gameplay element that didn't super work all that well. It was it was fine. I actually thought it was a, it was okay and it wasn't implemented poorly, but it wasn't it wasn't the smoothest experience, certainly. 
uh, you know, the premise was hilariously goofy. Like, it's literally you're a ghost detective in a fedora. Like, it, it was, you know, a little a little much in certain ways, but I thought it was like a perfect pulp kind of video game. Like I loved this game. I really, really loved it. And I don't think anybody bought it or anybody paid attention to it. And it made me a little bit sad. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's always those games you wish had hit that didn't, uh, this week, for instance, uh, somebody pointed out to me that ruse, uh, which was a really good real time strategy mm. game, mm-hmm. uh, from Ubisoft and Eugen systems who, be, who made the war game games, um, vanished from, uh, vanished from steam. Oh, and that was a game that I, that, that I was advocating for ages. I think I talked about on last week's show, uh, about how much I enjoy that game, but like nobody else did. Uh, mm. it was, a, it, it was not, it was not a huge success by the standards of, of what, uh, what a Ubisoft would, would expect. Uh, so th- there's, there's always those, there's always those games that you wish things had turned up differently for the, the missed opportunities. Um, I, I think in particular though, it's interesting to me, like when, games in a series like when one of those games tries to do something different and at that point it's it instantly becomes a referendum on whether or not that different thing should ever happen again right, right. or whether it should be undone <laughs> we go back to the way the series always was and and so i think like you know in in that example you know a game that i i sort of flash back to was um like x-wing alliance Hmm. because that was that was kind of the end of the the old x-wing games uh that was the that was the last one of of the series i don't know why like to this day i don't fully understand why why it didn't connect with people maybe at that point we we just had like a decade of x-wing tie fighter x-wing versus tie fighter now alliance maybe at that point it was just it was sort of played out um maybe it was the fact that you know, it was the, but it was the first game that really tried to tell sort of a personal story where you had the, the narrative split between your missions for the Rebel Alliance and your missions for the Azamine trading family. Oh, good. Um, yeah. <laughs> and the thing is, like, I really kind of liked it. I, I kind of liked the fact that occasionally you'd have to take time off, uh, from your career as a fighter pilot and go deal with, uh, like the smuggling life that your, your family was leading. I always sort of, I, I sort of enjoyed that, but, but most people didn't. Like that was, that was kind of the end of that series just because the, the audience that had been there for TIE Fighter, uh, been there for X-Wing versus TIE Fighter had, had kind of dried up. And so you're sort of left there sitting, you know, with, with a game that you enjoy and you'd like to see more of it and suddenly you realize you're never going to see it again. You know, it's yeah. just, it, yeah. it, it had its moment, it had its chance, it's been rejected. It's gone now. So I think that, that, that's definitely, that's definitely something that, that, that happens. Uh, and I think that's why series in particular tend to be conservative more often than, 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 than not, right? That, yeah. um, better to stick with a known quantity than, than risk annoying an existing fan base. It's such a brutal dance. And it is something we touched on last week with sort of Nintendo and how they sort of repackage a lot of their, characters and and some of their gameplay but with kind of new ideas and new things going on and yeah god that's tough that's a tough balance to hit for sure awesome so rob i think it's time for us to go into our our weekend projects have you been reading or watching listening uh, i don't know dancing what's what's uh on your mind lately well um I've gotten really into uh, the People versus OJ Simpson on oh, FX. Okay. If you're not familiar with it, uh, it's 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 a drama based around the uh, the the trial of OJ Simpson for the murders of Nicole Brown and uh, and Ron Goldman. 
but really, I, I think what's 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 really remarkable about it is is one the performance. Uh, some of the performances are, are are by and large uncanny. Um, like Cor- Courtney B. Vance, I think is 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 the actor playing Johnny Cochran, and mm-hmm. it's spooky. How it, it's it's like I, I feel like I'm watching the actual footage of the man himself, right? It's, <laughs> yeah. it, it's that, it's, it's that good, um, a performance. It's also interesting sort of getting a look at a lot of the stuff that was going on behind that trial, right? Cause a lot of us have vague memories of the trial itself, yeah. but this series sort of unpacks a lot of the things that, that gave context to that trial, right? So like, you know, you have things like the fact that the LA prosecutor's office kind of came into this with a losing hand because it wasn't that far removed from uh, the Rodney King trial. Sure. And so the, the entire justice system in Los Angeles uh, had kind of deservedly lost any credibility with yeah. the black community because yeah. there, there were, there were all these, there were all these cases of not only misconduct by officers, but the fact that, prosecutors and and attorneys for the state would sort of pursue uh you know trials in areas where they would get a friendly jury meaning an an, an all white jury and right. so you the, you see all these thing these things play out uh with with all these different elements being mixed together so there is a conversation early where where Marsha Clark um is sort of coming to grips with the fact that she has a slam dunk case. Uh, it's, mm. it's open and shut. Uh, the, the evidence against OJ Simpson is overwhelming. Uh, there's, there's no way you can lose this case in, uh, in, in a jury trial. And that's when her boss sort of overrules her and is like, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I want to be running for mayor in the next few years. We need <laughs> yeah. to be careful how we handle this. Uh, so we're not going to try it in the normal trial venue, uh, for a crime committed in Brentwood, uh, which would be Santa Monica, uh, because the optics of that are going to be an all white jury passing you know, passing verdict on, on OJ Simpson, a black man. Yeah. And so he's like, so we'll move the case downtown. And really, that's kind of the moment. Uh, that's one of the moments where this thing starts to slide away from the prosecutors because at that, like in LA in that time, uh, there was no way, th- there, there was basically no way for that, that trial not to be heavily informed by the disparate experiences of white people and, and, and people of color in mm-hmm. Los Angeles and their interactions with law enforcement. Uh, and, and so just, just seeing how that, the, how that sort of starts the, starts the ball rolling in terms of, uh, a, a case that the prosecution is not going to be able to win, uh, and then having them yeah. pile mistakes on top of that, uh, is really fascinating. It also does a good job of sort of getting beyond the way some of these characters are remembered, uh, that I think Johnny Cochran somewhat unfairly is remembered, uh, for a couple of the key moments in the in in the case, right? The if the love don't fit, you must acquit. Uh, but I, but I really think the enduring image of Johnny Cochran is that Johnny Cochran like character that exists on Seinfeld. Yeah. Um, that sort of slick, uh, you know, the manipulative lawyer who sort of pops up, uh, you know, speaks in rhymes, creates little like little sayings that will stick in people's minds, and then vanishes. Uh, and the, the, the Johnny Cochran you meet here is someone who's absolutely informed by 30 years of experience in law as a black man mm-hmm. in LA. And so there's yeah. this amazing flashback to when he was actually a prosecutor, uh, with, uh, with LA County. 
and he's getting hassled by the cops in front of his kids. Uh, there's a early interaction between him and Christopher Darden, uh, where, you know, he's trying to, you know, tell Darden that in the end you, you can't, you know, you can't serve the interests of your community and simultaneously serve the interests of the LAPD. Eventually you have to choose. Um, and that's a thread that runs through the show. So there's, it's, it's, it's really well made. It's really addictive and it's, it's brilliant at how it, uh, contextualizes all the, all these moments in a trial that I personally was, was too young fully to understand. Uh, and so high, you know, highly recommended. Uh, it's, it's great television and it's also, uh, really informative about a lot of details that I'd sort of forgotten about, about the early nineties and, and what that moment meant in America. Wow. That's okay. That, that just shot to the very top of my list of kind of what to watch next. Um, I have to say, it sounds like you, you were watching one of the most intelligent, well put together courtroom dramas. And I was watching probably the dumbest, uh, courtroom drama. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's a, that's a legal procedural, right? <laughs> sort of. Um, I just finished watching Daredevil season two. Um, and boy, oh boy, is it dumb as shit. It is dumb, 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 dumb. It, Oh my god. So it's weird because I'm, I'm doing one of these semi-endorsements where it's like, I found some things pretty cool about this, but I also think it is schlocky as hell. And and the biggest problem with Daredevil is that it does not know that it's schlocky as hell. Yes. Whereas, you know, something like Lost Girl, which I've gushed about, it knows how stupid it is. It absolutely knows. It's tongue-in-cheek. It's in on the joke. Daredevil is so not. It is grimdark, just completely... Um, you know, it's, it's starring Catholic guilt Batman and his, his goofy friend and, you know, sort of everybody, every other person in this show is some other sort of comic book character. And the arc this season is really about, so, you know, Matt Murdock is the, the main character. He's Daredevil. He is a lawyer by day, a blind, a blind man, a lawyer by day and sort of a masked vigilante at night. He can beat people up because he can hear everything so well that he can kind of see whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and, in this season, there's a character, there's a woman named Electra, who's also kind of a superhero. There are blood ninjas. I, I don't even understand half of it. I watched the whole thing. Uh, there's the Punisher who shows up. He's kind of the sort of the main antagonist, although it's a little more complicated than than uh, the sort of Wilson Fisk uh, kingpin character from kind of the first season, although he shows up as well. Um, it, it's sort of half uh, courtroom procedural, half wacky superhero show um you know it's kind of about how matt likes to use the law you know during the day and at night he kind of is the law it's it's one of those uh, kinds of things um i enjoyed the show more the more completely off the rails it went and it went all the way off the rails you know the first season is a little bit more conservative in terms of you know it's a superhero show here's his moral dilemma as a superhero here's his world uh here's the big bad and he goes up against the big bad this is much more like look at the crazy shit that's going on and it is crazy um Man, it is. There's kind of a lot to unpack so, in terms of. Uh, oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, because I'm. I'm now. I'm kind of confused. <laughs> so am I. You like it more <laughs> as it gets dumber. Yes. But it, um, but you also it, don't like that it doesn't know that it's getting dumber. So I, I guess correct. I'm curious. Like, does this show get better as it gets as it gets worse? Or kind of. Okay. <laughs> it's just more fun to watch because it's never the writing is is kind of bad. Like I, I genuinely think the dialogue is is pretty bad, and I think the actors do a decent job with it. I think the actors are kind of up to the task. It's just the dialogue is is dumb as dirt. Uh, it really is like terrible, terrible dialogue, um, and fairly obvious kind of scenarios. You know, you can you can kind of 
call every other line and kind of say, oh, now they're going to do this. Now they're going to do that until they completely stop being predictable. And that's why I kind of like when it goes off the rails, because you have no idea what's coming next. And it doesn't make much sense, but it's uh, wacky and kind of fun to watch, at least. There are also sort of some characters I really like in this show. I I don't care much for Matt Murdock, Daredevil. I think he's just way too self-serious. He really is completely Catholic guilt Batman. Like, that's his whole deal. You know, it's just kind of like, okay, go to church, and that's fine. Yeah. You know, the, nothing wrong with that. It's just he's not very fun, I don't think, to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a character on the show, um, Claire. She's a nurse at the hospital, and it, you can just see touches of how awesome a show around her might be. So she's night nurse. She's actually, you know, her own kind of comic book character. And she patches up these vigilantes sometimes. You know, she kind of has a deal with Matt where she'll patch him up. She'll kind of help him out medically so he can kind of keep going out and fighting. And, and she's conflicted about it because she's like, she actually likes him as a person. They have a friendship. They had a relationship somewhat in the first season. And, you know, she really likes him, cares about him, doesn't want him to go out and get killed, but recognizes, you know, he is kind of doing a good thing. He's trying to help out the city. And, and you know, where he fails as a lawyer, he can maybe succeed as a masked vig- vigilante. Uh, but but her life is interesting, and she's stuck, you know, sort of dealing with hospital administration and dealing with all these other things that actually face kind of people in the medical field, um, but with this, you know, superhero kind of heightened stakes yeah. uh, sort of thing. So every time she's on screen, it's wonderful. And she's played by Rosario Dawson, who's wonderful anyway. So, you know, I get excited on the show when she's there. I'm like, oh, God, oh, God, yes, yes, this could be really cool. And the show really does, it, it paws at kind of some interesting stuff. The, the character Karen is kind of a legal assistant, but she's also kind of a, she has she has some depth to her. She she kind of is learning to be a reporter in, in portions of this, and she has some some guts. And, and I actually liked the Punisher character way more than sort of the Wilson Fisk character. He, he's, he's still a, a kind of a boring cliche, you know, ex-soldier who mm-hmm. was a, the good man, you know, who now is sort of out and he, and he kills bad guys. That's right. his thing. He, he goes above the law and he gets rid of the, the filth of the city, that kind of thing. Um, really obvious and really unsubtle, but I, I kind of liked him, at least on some level. Like, I felt like there was at least something to that character. I enjoyed sort of watching him. Um, and when things go completely off the rails, it is a very entertaining action show. It just it is pretty stupid. <laughs> the, the the action in the show has always been been first rate. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think so. This is all sort of dovetailing with my concerns at the end of the first season where I think <laughs> Daredevil started uh, very good and got dumber. And oh, and yeah. see and like you said, seemed not to know it. It was it, yep. it seemed kind of self congratulatory <laughs> yeah. about how stupid it was. Um, <laughs> and so, like, I, I felt like in that first season, you had an interesting villain in Wilson Fisk when he starts out as uh, a ruthless. A businessman who's often on the other side of the law, right? He cross, yeah. like there are no lines for him. He just does what he wants. Uh, he's got a brutal, vile temper, but at the same time, there's a there's a deep humanity to him. That's and he's genteel in a lot yes. of ways, which is interesting. Yeah. Except he's trying to be genteel, right? But he's this hulking yeah. brute, and yeah. he's aware of it. And so it's this. It, it was this interesting. It was this really great performance. Uh, but then in the latter half of that season, he just gets increasingly over the top and. Oh, yeah. and silly like you know the where to the point where he's just blatantly being just like pure pure malice and evil yep. and at a certain point you can no longer square that with the characterization 
to have been done earlier in the season, right? And when you have him screaming at Daredevil at the end of the first season, I guess the city doesn't deserve its sunny day or something like that. Oh yeah, uh, it was or or it's brighter, brighter tomorrow. I don't know. Oh, it was yeah. just ter- it was just terrible. It was rancid. It was rancid writing. Yep. And I feel like a lot of the conversation around Daredevil was just this embarrassing. Oh my God! There's a competently shot single camera drama about superheroes. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, but. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it, uh, and I enjoyed it through that first season, and I'm I am going to watch the second season, but it doesn't <laughs> sound like they actually improved on the elements that that needed improving. Uh, yeah, not even slightly. <laughs> yeah, it's that it's that awful feeling, uh, like I described with Gotham, right? Yeah. They're not figuring things out. They've arrived at the destination they were aiming for. Uh, so, so the question is now whether whether you want to stay aboard that ride. Uh, I, I think. You know, for me, what what this stuff compares so badly to is is just a lot of the stuff you see on, um, like the CW's Arrow and uh, yeah. and the Flash, uh, which is which is, in generally way more competent and internally consistent, uh, when it comes to characterizations and and sort of being smarter than it looks. Uh, but yeah, yeah I, I can't wait to to give this a look. You and I at some point need to have a long conversation about that and and Jessica Jones and sort yes. of the um yes. the 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 dark side of the of the Marvel TV universe uh that exists on netflix now yeah and i have to say i you know because this and jessica jones have several crossover you know there's several points where characters from one show kind of show up on the other there's several crossovers watching this again or, or sort of you know watching the second season of this just made me it just reinforced in me how much better Jessica Jones is and how much more yeah. subtle and interesting and how much more interesting the characters are as well. So Yeah, Jessica Jones is a it's well, Jessica Jones is a is a private eye story, right? I yes, mean it's it's, yes. it's it's like from the credits, you know that they're like, Okay, this is an urban noir. Yes. And Daredevil is is something else uh <laughs> entirely sure and doesn't is. doesn't have as, as clear a mission statement uh as, as I think. By the way, does it drive you insane that daredevil seems to have no conception of how the law works it, it does oh my god especially you know the courtroom scenes i'm just like oh my god. can you guys just watch one episode of the good wife he's just he, one yes. episode of the good this wife. is this is actually why i couldn't watch how to get away with murder either it's like she's the best sure. criminal attorney and slam cut to the whole team like striding <laughs> down the corridor of the law <laughs> profession like looking like astronauts like looking at the mercury seven yeah. uh, about to get shot into space and in the meantime like the, the the like judge judy is a more realistic depiction <laughs> of, the, of the criminal process than, than how to get away with murder and oh so like, every God. time like daredevil's on and matt just starts giving a speech and it's like oh. dude this isn't where you talk <laughs> you need to you need to cross that witness yeah, exactly it's Oh God, it, it really drives me just up a wall. It's like, come on, come on, people. Can you do a little bit of research? I just get mad at the writers, like constantly while watching the show. I'm like, really? Come on. Just well, come on. Come the fuck on. Also, guys. because his <laughs> conflict is not only between like Catholic guilt, but also he is an officer of the court and officer of the law. Yeah. That conflict gets a lot more interesting if the show exhibits some modicum of understanding of what yeah. that conflict might actually entail and what his other identity might sort of impose upon him. But instead it's like, yeah, boy, I really should do these things in a court of law, but you know, instead I think I'll just beat the shit out of this guy. Yeah. It's a very, it's a very, very sort of 12 year old boys version of what the, the adult world looks like. Yeah. Very, very, very much. Uh, and that, 
you know, there's a place for that, certainly, but man, it, the show is not advertised as such. So that's yeah. <laughs> good fights, though. Good fights. Yeah. By all Great means, fights. I'm, uh, every, I'm sure a lot of people like will will enjoy the hell out of that show. I certainly will enjoy the fights, but yeah, it, yeah. it's a bit of a missed opportunity. Yeah, I I agree, man. Anyway, let's uh, let's daredevil our way. Yeah, never what mind. What was that? Uh, let's no. <laughs> <laughs> let's just wrap it up. I'm I'm bad at puns right now. Um, <laughs> so with that, I think it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Chris Remo and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. Uh, so if you're enjoying the show, and we really hope you are, please do rate us on iTunes and tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your dog, tell everybody that you think might enjoy the show. It helps us out so, so much. And as always, we really, really do appreciate your letters. We've actually not been getting quite as many letters as usual. So if you if you have a burning question or a point you'd like to bring up or, you know, something you'd, you'd like to uh, to have discussed on the show, please do write us in. It's questions at idleweekend.net anytime. Uh, we love your letters. You write some of the best letters on any podcast I've ever heard of. <laughs> so we always really appreciate that. And, and please don't hesitate to uh, to send those in. You can learn more about the show at idleweekend.net and send us those questions for weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at idleweekend. For Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo, wishing you the finest of idle weekends. Oh, that felt like a good one. That did. That felt that felt right.